Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sattler. Today, we're talking about... The social contract today. And what we're talking about here is a little bit different than most of the shows that we've done. It's a little bit more like the last episode where we're talking about topical issues of the day and they're they're not just sort of trivial things they're very momentous um dan and i have been observing what's been going on in, in milwaukee and you know, every, i think everyone's seeing what's going on not just nationwide but worldwide particularly in terms of the black lives matter movement and protests and policing and so one of the things that we touched on last episode and said we might think about a bit more is this notion of the social contract and so we started kicking this idea around and, and we have uh, quite a lot <laughs> to go into, I think. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so, I mean, what, what's, what's your take on, on this, like right from the start? Uh, so that we're, we're having a, a breakdown in our social contract and, you know, we might need to kind of define that social contract as a, a term or a, you know, a idea. And um, it's this idea that there is a, a certain like expectations given between the populace and the government, between the governed and the governed. And what are the reasons for this? What are the expectations that are given? And what are the divisions of powers between those two groups? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes when we have that expression that a lot of people use today, we live in a society, we're expressing something that's not exactly the same as this notion of a social contract, but it's very closely related. There's norms that govern you and govern me, and we're all supposed to follow these norms. And we usually point this out when somebody is is violating these these norms, right? So... It becomes yeah. an issue. And then, you know, whenever there's some sort of conflict about whether a rule or a norm or expectation is legitimate or has been broken and people don't agree about that, we have to have some way of adjudicating it. Otherwise, it just turns into uh, people going back and forth like when we were kids and I would say yes and you would say no or right, wrong or whatever mm -hmm. it's going to be. And then sooner or later, we're going to come to blows if we can't. Um, address these things before they they turn into just pure aggression, right? Right. Agreed upon set of rules. A uh, you know maybe a third party arbitrator of the situation at hand. Otherwise, you know it, it could easily devolve into negative and uh, physical violence. Yeah, you know it's interesting. We're going to talk a bit about classic social contract theory, and one of the things that you see in almost every one of those early modern political theorists, because it must have been a big problem at the time, was that when there's a controversy, you can't make one of the one of the sides or one of the members of the controversy the judge over the controversy. You actually do need to have something else. Maybe it's a set of laws that everyone can, can get behind. Maybe it's uh, an impartial judge, maybe it's a partial judge, but somebody who's actually <laughs> at least removed from the situation. Maybe it's what they call the sovereign or the the magistrate. But you gotta, you can't, you can't just let one side get to decide how the conflict is going to be resolved because it's going to inevitably, 
even if it's a good person, there's the, the, the early thinker, the early modern thinkers thought that's going to corrupt a person. So if I'm having a dispute with you, I don't know about, you know, airtime or something, right? You're like, yeah, you only let me talk for 20 minutes during the thing. And you talk for 40 minutes. And I'm like, well, let me tally it up. Let me, <laughs> let me decide what's fair. You're going to still end up with just 20 minutes. Or maybe I give you even less. Maybe I give you 15 minutes. I'll show that guy, shut him down and shut him up, you know? And so we need, we need something to get us out of that, that sort of situation. And it's also built right into the definition there. It is a contract and a, you know, you have to, mm. it's like a conversation. It's an agreement between, you know, two or more groups or peoples. And if they're not there, then you're just, you know, asserting uh, authority over someone and it's no longer a contract. Yeah, and now we should probably specify that you're you're not going to be able to like go to the Hall of Records and find the social <laughs> contract anywhere, right? It's not that sort of sort of contract. It's something that's supposed to be more foundational and often this is where a lot of people in ordinary uh, discussions and parlance often get into to arguments with each other, and it, they don't necessarily need to say the word social contract. It could be just like people sitting at a bar, and and somebody's like, "Hey, you didn't order a round of drinks, uh, and I paid for your round of drinks." And then the, the person's like, "Well, I mean, we didn't make any explicit agreement. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you can you can buy me whatever you want. It's nice of you to be generous." And then the the first person will be like, "Hey, that's not okay." There's uh, and they might talk about a social contract. Probably not, right? They're going to say other things like "that's not fair" or a if tradition I do, or yeah, if I do yeah. this, you ought to do that as well. But there's the the basic idea there is that there's a social contract that they're supposed to be following, and that's a fairly trivial thing, you know, who's yeah. buying drinks. But but it, it can extend to all sorts of other things as well. I I had a real quick interesting story to belabor that point is uh last birthday i had a i was at a, a bar for some karaoke and uh one of the people that came along was a, a gentleman that i just met recently but he was from um india and so we go to the bar together and he's like you know um he's expecting me to buy his drinks and i'm like it's my birthday uh, and i think he thought because like i had invited him out oh. that was like at least the first drink that i was going to buy for him it might have been his social uh, expectation and my expectation was the opposite for that particular situation well you know there are other cultures where if it's your birthday you're expected to buy drinks or food for other people as well oh, yeah. but i don't think i don't know that india is that i think germany is one of those places because i remember a german friend now maybe she maybe was making up stories or something and she was like you know on our birthdays we try to avoid going out because we have to pay for everybody else <laughs> but i mean you know and, and that's that's actually it's a great story because what it illustrates is that there the norm itself the the content of it can change from culture to culture situation to situation but the basic expectation is the same. There's supposed to be some sort of reciprocity there. Or given these sorts of conditions, you're supposed to follow through on what you're supposed to do. Right? So, right. I mean, we have, we have basic sort of social contract involved in all the commerce that we do. If I go into a store and I, you know, um, now normally I would just run my credit card, but let's say I'm paying cash. Um, I, I give the person a $20 bill. I, ex I probably expect some change back, you know? Right. And, and now in other places, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's not the expectation. And then the social contract would be, 
you know, maintained by my saying keep the change because that's what everybody does. And so there's, there's a normativity involved in the social contract. And what we're talking about today is less about how everything goes great and, you know, swimmingly or smoothly or anything like that and we're, we're what, more you're saying there's a breakdown sometimes no well there's there there's many breakdowns and though many of those breakdowns get kind of you know they get remedied or addressed and, and not always perfectly there's always some free riders that we have to deal with but for the most part you know people they they do things that we view as breaking the social contract and then they get sanctioned in some way what what jeremy bentham called the moral or social sanction of you know people saying hey i don't want to i don't want to hang out with you you're a jerk mm-hmm. um or you really ought to go fix that or you, you know people doing those sorts of things rather than what he called the political sanction where somebody who's authorized like uses force on you or uh, imposes a fine or something along those lines. There's also, I should point out too, Bentham talks about the physical sanction. There's some things that if you do them, you end up feeling pain for some reason. So there's some things that are, are so stupid to do, some violations that you you know, you know shouldn't do. Uh, like you break into somebody's house and you, you get you know your belly stuck on the glass as you're crawling through the window. Physical sanction for the wrong act that you did. And maybe next time around, you won't do it, you know. Um, but if, if everyone comes along and, and you know, uh, says, look at that idiot over there um, stuck on the glass, well, that's the moral sanction. And then, you know, once the cops come and take you away and the judge sentences you, political sanction. And for Bentham, these all kind of kind of work together, ideally. Although, you know, the British law system of his time uh, was really baroque and, and screwed up that's part of why he wrote the stuff that he did but coming was, back uh, broke baroque um sorry <laughs> um and you couldn't so resist you, the pun right i couldn't um and so uh this idea of a breakdown of social contract there was yeah. a video that happened uh recently that you wanted to talk about that with um from kimberly jones yeah, and this is very moving. I, I, I think a lot of people saw the last two minutes of it, and that's what I saw first, where she was talking explicitly about social contracts. So when I saw that, I was like, well, we have to bring this up during during our show because it illustrates what's happening right now and the way a lot of people feel. So it's a six-minute video, and we'll put a link to it. She first talks about some of the criticisms that are being made of, of the protest. So she's taking a strategy very similar to like Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail where she says, our critics are saying this, let me address that first. And two of the, the criticisms are the protesters should not be rioting or looting and tearing up their own communities. And we hear this every time that there's something like, like this going on. And then another criticism of the protests was that instead of engaging in any sort of protest or violent action, they should be um, voting with their pocketbooks. They should be engaging in, in boycotts and blackouts and doing economic actions. And she said, well, that works great when you've actually got a lot of economic uh, clout to, to bring to bear. And then she says, let me talk about the, the protests. And she says, we, we can break them down into three groups of people. And I think she's correct about this. There's the protesters who are the, the vast majority and they're upset, and they're they're quite often angry, and um, 
some of them could do you know some violence at some time, but they're not generally engaging in that. And, and, and these protests that we've been seeing over the last two weeks, it's really remarkable how much restraint has been shown by protesters. Then we actually have rioters. And she says, you know, some of them are, are people who are anarchists and are coming in and stirring up stuff because they, they've got some ideological conviction that force is the way to go. And then there's the looters. And she says, those people are just there to do that looting. And you're, you're always going to have some of that. And we've seen that happen here in, in Milwaukee, right? Um, mm -hmm. And she says, what's really important is not that we focus on the what of the looters, but the why. Why, why are people doing this? Some of them maybe get a kick out of breaking windows and stealing stuff. But, you know, I think she's right in saying that many of them are doing it because they, they see a nation of affluence that they're locked out from. And some of them are in genuine need. She talks about people who are so food insecure that they're going to break in and, and take food. Um, and, that, and that does happen. And then she, she talks about this metaphor of a game, which is, you know, again, quite, quite um, moving. A game that's rigged from the start against African Americans, but she could be talking about um, all sorts of other racial minorities. She could be talking about women. She could be talking about transgendered people in, in, in the presence. There's all sorts of applications of this. So you have a, a game that's rigged at the start, and then people work really hard to make it, even though the, the rules of the game are against them, even though they're not really getting equal protection or equal opportunities. And then it, when they make it, somebody else comes along to knock them down. So think about the Tulsa riots, you know, a prime right. example, or, or you know, nineteen nineteen, I believe. I think so. Yeah, um, and, and and those were duplicated, not on that that exact scale, but you know, all over the nation for years and years and years to come. You know, and um, you know, I think, I think we should like talk just a little bit about the Tulsa riot or the the um the burning oh, of for, black wall street yeah 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 so it was a hundred years ago and there was a a very affluent community in uh tulsa oklahoma um called you know referred to as black wall street um and lots of uh middle class lots of black owned shops uh, you know black owned theaters and you know a whole thriving black community and yeah. there was one moment that allowed them to uh, the the white populace that were um, upset that there were some black people that were you know better Succeeding. than them, yeah. yeah. Uh, I believe there's a, a quote about like um, he this guy has a piano in his foyer and I don't have a piano in my foyer. Why yeah. should the black man have a piano? And so then they they, they burned and literally flew airplanes and bombed yeah. this portion of the city. Uh, and hundreds were murdered. Yeah, it was it was terrorism on an incredible scale here in in the United States, and and you know to make things worse, the 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 riots ended up getting blamed on the black community as if they'd provoked it, you know, um, and and we, you know again we can think of many situations like that. What's what's happening in a case like that? It's what Kimberly Jones is talking about: is the game is already rigged. They succeed despite the rigging. Somebody else comes to knock them down afterwards. So the, the rules of the game change even after that. And so she says 
the game keeps getting re-rigged against African Americans. And then there's a, a passage where she says, well, why are people burning down the neighborhood? And she says, it's, it's because it's not our neighborhood. We don't actually own anything. And I think that's a really central concept. It's not just about ownership in terms of property. It's ownership in terms of buy-in. It's ownership in terms of feeling like you belong and are part of a community and will be protected by the same norms as other people have. Then she brings up uh, Trevor Noah, who brought, you know, who brought up the idea of social contract on his show. And he, he was using the example of stealing. And this is a very, very basic concept. You find it running in almost every ethical code. Keep your hands off of other people's stuff. And he says, um, you know, when the social contract is violated, the authority comes in to fix the situation. And then she says, but the situation is killing us. And so the social contract is broken. And that's, that's where I think we have to start in, in thinking about the social contract. If the social contract is indeed broken, or if it never really was what it was supposed to be, then it's a legitimate question. Why should she or anybody else who's not being protected by the social contract follow the social contract? And she puts it in terms of why should she care if the football hall of fame gets burned down? It's not her football hall of fame. And she can't even say that it's, it's our football hall of fame, you know? Um, and I, I think that this is, this is a, a very legitimate question to raise have African-Americans, and we can, talk, we can broaden this to all sorts of other people, and we can talk in terms of class as well, have people been shut out of the social contract? So in order to answer this, of course, I think we have to talk about what the social contract is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we, we touched on like the basic idea of it beforehand. And so it's kind of like it's this thing that we're given at birth for the most part like you know none of us were the ones that like set up a country and <laughs> there are a few people who think they are but yeah. <laughs> um but but we're born into it and we for the most part we don't ever question the merits of that contract that we're born into you know only through experience if it doesn't work for us then do we start to do that and uh, and for those people who the social contract is working for, um, they have no reason to um, upend the status quo. You know, and then when someone dares to say that the system is no good, many will defend that system unthinkingly without looking at the merits of the argument being put forth and say kind of a society by way of a sports affiliation. Now, what do you mean by that? Like Sort of like a rooting for your team or... Yeah, like you know, without unthinkingly, and it's like that. This is the way it is, and and this is good because it was the the thing that we all have, right? Yeah, okay. And, I, I, I I can I can see that because it's it, if somebody were to say, um, well, I'm I'm uh, you know, I grew up here in Wisconsin, but for once, I actually want to like think through my sports team affiliation. Which of the NFL teams should I be supporting? And I, a lot of people say that I should support the Packers because I'm from here, but you know I should give each of them a look. <laughs> we would say, oh, that's a very unusual person. Um, I, I don't right. know that that's how we decide our sports allegiances. And so you're saying that this that the social contract that we're inhabiting uh, and guiding our actions by is something usually like that. Yeah, just that that we're given to it, it and then unless we accept it and we bring it into us as part of our person, 
um, just because that is the way that we were, it's the water that we were swimming in when we, you know, were born. So you it's almost think that's the way it is. Yeah. So it's almost like we drink some of the water and it becomes part of the, the fabric of our, our body then, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just that the water is external to us. I mean, classic social contract theory, they tended to talk about it in a very artificial way where like people got together at some time and they didn't have a government and they all like came to an agreement and said, these are the basic norms that we ought to be following. And then who's going to, who's actually going to be in charge of this? Who's going to administer these norms? Oh, we'll pick that guy over there and give him a couple assistants to work with. And it never it's such really... a philosopher's way of thinking about it. And it, it <laughs> probably was nothing like that. There was like some guy and he was like the big guy and he like started doing things and you know, over time certain things were better than other things and and then certain ways of doing things just kind of grew out of that. And yeah. Is this kind of like the philosophers are like, oh, well, kind of looking back at what we are given and saying like, well, if someone was to do this from a blank slate how would they have done that yeah i mean i don't know that hobbs and locke really thought that anybody ever did have one of those sort of get-togethers mm-hmm. um but they they certainly thought that you could do that in the future and mm-hmm. you know we do we do stuff kind of like that at certain times when we're dealing with um creating new institutions or conflicts if we if we're doing it in a rational way rather than just letting somebody make the choice because they own everything or you know because we're all too lazy to to be in on the the designing process <laughs> that's another thing as well um but i i like the idea of internalizing it that you were bringing up i think that's that's dead on i think that that a lot of people <clears throat> view the social contract as something that we can call on with other people um precisely because we think that they, like us, have internalized it. And that's part of what goes into being like a, a good citizen or an upstanding person or a decent human being. Yeah, I think of like, you know, uh, slavery in our country. And for those states that practice it, it was like, that's just the way things were. And that, you know, it made sense that these people were uh, considered lesser and thus totally deserved to be property, which is a abhorrent statement. But if you are born into it and everyone says that, you know, says this and it becomes really difficult for you to move against that particular position. You know, and that's interesting because I think there were like a lot of gradations. <clears throat> One of the reasons I think why you know, when you look at the literature of the time, the, the, the worries about being sold further down south was that the further south that you went, the more oppressive the the slave regime was and the less, I mean, people could still say, well, this is this is BS, you know, this, this is unfair because there were some people saying that even in the deepest of, of the south, but you'd have to really work to find them compared to, you know, the, the areas that were more uh, on the border, you could say. Mm-hmm. So this, once you have people that are starting to push against the status quo, this is a time to, um, like, reflect and and it's it's a wake up call to say like, oh, you might need to reassess the uh, preconceptions you're uh, that you are were given, and maybe this thing isn't working. And if you just dismiss it outright, then I don't think you're being like 
honest about the position that you're taking. You're just taking that, uh, I guess, on faith. Okay. Yeah, that that makes sense. So what do you think we can take from classic social contract theory that helps to make sense out of the condition that we're in now in, in late modernity here in the United States, here in Milwaukee, um, seeing some people definitely being treated um, for, for generations in ways that were unfair and then on top of that, um, you know, often being penalized for even pointing out the, the unfairness of it. Um, do you think there's anything to these, these uh, you know, like Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and the, these? Uh... Yeah, and there's, there's, it depends on, I guess, of these three that we're talking about, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau, it, it all stems at least to a certain extent from this idea of a, a state of nature the state of nature um you know uh this idea of what we were like as human beings um before any sort of like government or organization between the people and um and the reason that is very important is because depending on your idea of the state of nature it be it like like warlike and barbarous or like potentially more idyllic or maybe moral um that it will definitely change the way in which you respond to um what needs the social contract have and in direct regards to the uh question at hand you know specifically like um Locke and Rousseau do uh advocate for you know there should be some way to overthrow this social contract if it is not being the it is not actually beneficial to the people itself yeah and and both of them in talking about that it's not the contract per se as like a set of norms that they usually have a problem with it's the person who's in charge of enforcing it who's either being lazy or selfish or partial or malicious or, you know, doing, doing something that they're not supposed to do. And they, they usually use the word like Locke talks about the executive. Um, uh, Rousseau talks about the magistrate. And so, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that you see social contract theory always um, focusing on is why should the people who are having authority used on them, why should they go along with it? And, and uh, in some cases, uh, Locke would say, eh, they can push you so far, and then after that you revolt, and that's, that's A-OK. I mean, that was the justification for the American Revolution. Um, Rousseau ends up being used by the, uh, the French to talk about their own revolution. Um, so that's, that's an important part of it. Um, you know, do, do you think it boils down to a conception of, well, you know, human beings can be viewed as basically good or basically bad, or is that is that oversimplifying this? Um, well, it's a little oversimplifying, but, like, that's the, the idea that humans are basically bad is kind of the idea of Hobbes. That, you know, uh, was it uh, human nature is like warlike and uh, human life is uh, suffering and short? Well, he says that <laughs> outside of the bounds of society, yeah. human life is nasty, brutish and short. And the idea is, well, that's why you need a very powerful authority 
And Hobbes is really somebody good to bring up here. So he's very worried about falling into a state of nature. And there's a couple different ways in which this gets construed. It could be like some legendary state where we're all like hitting each other with clubs for, you know, whatever it is that we've got. Or it could be like, you know, society breaking down an actual society because of people not being able to get along and not, not just motivated by competition or, you know, not liking each other, but they, they can't agree on moral norms and how things ought to be judged. So, so society itself breaks down. And he, he saw that happen with the English Civil War, which is incredibly bloody and, and violent. Um, he was sitting it out in Paris at the time <laughs> and got to know the young, young king who later brought, you know, uh, when, took over. And Hobbes was actually one of his favorites for a while. Um, and Hobbes thinks that, you know, here's, and here's where it's very applicable. You have to have a really powerful, what he calls sovereign, who has the power of life and death over all of us, and who not only gets to make the rules, but who cannot be questioned. Mm-hmm. And he's he, the arbitrator between these warring factions. He would be an individual. You can't even allow, for for Hobbes. You can't even allow there to really be factions. You need to mm-hmm. you need to defang them and uh, disarm them. Nobody can be stronger than the sovereign. If you if you allow private armies, because that was a big problem in, in, in you know among the aristocracy, they'd have actually have these private armies. You're gonna you're sooner or later you're gonna be in, in trouble. And so Hobbes would say, whoever happens to be in charge, it's always better to let them be in charge than to risk everything falling apart. And so I think a lot of people who are um, making justifications for you know, a lot of excessive police force right now are pretty Hobbesian. They, they view the police as that thin blue line against the chaos and barbarism and anarchy that would be happening if we don't support them. And I think this you know, sometimes emboldens the police themselves to uh, view themselves as the magistrate who is who gets to impose their will on everybody else and who cannot be questioned. And that, that's what we see in these protests, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the police aggression and brutality has been against people questioning the police, saying, right. what are you doing over there? You know, why are you shooting tear gas at us? This isn't right. And then the police come in and start just, you know, I mean, the, the things that we've been seeing on video over the last week are very eye-opening. The... Uh response to police brutality with police brutality or the the response of the protests against police brutality with police brutality yeah and i think that 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 is quite hobbesian and and it's an attempt to try to impose let's call it a warped social contract a social Mm -hmm. contract that doesn't actually serve the people under it a hobbesian social contract isn't a very good social contract it's you know to go back to last week this distinction between positive and negative peace yeah what that, that, ex- explain that a bit for those who haven't heard uh, last so week's episode? Positive and negative peace is this idea that where you can have peace, which is just the lack of violence, and a negative peace is a lack of violence due to exerted force. And so, you know, prisons can be peaceful because there is a, a force that will do great harm to you if you step out of line. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't really well translate into a community. And the idea of a positive piece is that one in which is, uh, you know, 
full of justice that people um, want to be interacting and there's no want for any sort of violence to be happening in the first place that people are all have total buy-in whereas you know the negative piece is one where you know people don't have buy-in but they only don't revolt because of the repercussions and it just doesn't result in a uh, a happy society or community it's a, a festering uh now pustule waiting to burst you know that reminds me too of saint augustine in the city of god he talks about peace as something that all all human beings actually do desire and seek and he he brings up you know there's there's people who bring up counterexamples and he's like well i can answer this one and this one and this one we don't have to go too much into that but he he points out that even those who go to war really do want peace, but they want peace on their terms. They want to, those who want to dominate other people, they want peace. They just want a peace where they're on top and the other people mm-hmm. shut up and do what they say. And so I think that that's part of the idea that's, that's, that's informing that notion of negative peace. Um, what else, what else you, do we need to bring up about these? Would these you things? go a little bit into the state of nature for uh, you know, Locke and Rousseau, away from our Hobbesian idea that we're kind of dealing sure. with at the moment. Yeah, I mean, so so for Locke, he says the state of nature is not a war of all against all. It's just rather unpredictable. And he, he pictured uh, wrongly the, the condition of the Native Americans here before uh, the coming of, of Europeans as being that sort of state. Um, and he, he thought that the biggest problem with the state of nature is that just without any sort of authority, we're inevitably going to wind up, when we do come into conflict, not being able to resolve it fairly because we don't have any impartial judge. Um, and he also is much more... Um, Pro-human? Well, yeah. And, and, or yeah, pro-human humane. morality? <laughs> and, and also, you know, he thinks that... We shouldn't just put up with anything from the executive. Um, the Hobbesian sovereign is a bad ruler from a Lockean perspective. You know, if, if they're going to take away our rights, and again, I think this is part of the justification of the American Revolution. If they're going to take away our rights, then we should revolt against them. And Locke is often used by conservatives, but I think he could have quite a radical interpretation as, as well. And then Rousseau, who has been used a lot by radicals, um, Rousseau's kind of a weird one. He's, he's sort of all over the map. He has a piece called The Social Contract, but he has all these other discourses as well. And he thinks that we as human beings, and I think he's entirely right about this, we develop from a state where we don't have not just government, but even any institutions at all, like language and technology. And then we develop this sort of stuff and we move out of what he calls pure savagery into barbarism, where we do have some sort of norms, but they're not they're not codified in the way that they are in a civilized society. And um, he thinks people are happier under barbarism. I don't know that that's really the case, but um, he makes he makes a case for it. And then he says, with civilization, we can develop much more complex societies, but they're also way more unequal. As a matter of fact, one of the discourses is called the discourse on the origin of inequality among men. And in it, he points out that once we actually have like a, a social contract in place um, and we appoint the people who are going to be in charge, that doesn't mean that everything goes along swimmingly after that. As a matter of fact, there are these differentials of, say, wealth. Some people are very, very 
wealthy, and, and wealth is not just something that sits still. You can use it to do other things. Uh, and, and very often the wealthy, it wasn't just Rousseau pick, you know, talking about this. Machiavelli talks about this too, the rich oppress the poor. Um, it's almost like a, a commonplace throughout um, social theory from the ancient time all the way to the modern times. And then we have, you know, power, uh, authority, and then we have social prestige or social status. And Rousseau notes that if you got one of these, you can probably get the others. So if you have political authority, you can use your position to make yourself very wealthy. This is what we see our political class doing today. It's why right. it's why you know people who become uh, presidents or senators or Congress people, for the most part, you know they may have been able to relate to us when they first were getting into office. After a while, they can't really relate to the the rest of us at all. They're so, so insulated. Uh, really quick, could you uh, define uh, Rousseau's uh, idea of barbarism here? It's a state before we actually have um, a sort of functional government in place. And what we're relying on is um, we could call them de facto authorities who, you know, like think about tribes um, before you have a, a fixed government. Um, and people, you know, like tribal elders, or maybe uh, well, yeah, but also people sort of, uh, you know, they have their culture and they follow the norms, but they take the norms into their own hands. So they they punish people when when they're going to. Um, and you could have somebody who's who's a king or something, but they're not a king in the in the same sense with having like the whole bureaucratic administration beneath them. Um, and so, you know, the, these kind of fade into each other. He presents it as if there's like an almost like an on off switch, like you go from savagery into barbarism, barbarism into the, the social contract. But it's, it's not quite so simple, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does think that we if things get bad enough, we will break society will break down and the social contract will be broken. And the trouble is, is as civilized people, we're going to be worse off than a bunch of savages. We would have been better off becoming savages because now we're kind of spoiled. And we'll, we'll put together a new social contract and we'll just have this cyclical thing where it works for a little while. And then, you know, the rich and the powerful take more than their fair share. And they use the social institutions like, say, the police to reinforce their rule against others. And, you know, then we have another revolt. And, and that, that's the way he sees things going on. And on. The French Revolution was, in some respect, an attempt to say, no, you're wrong, Rousseau. We can actually have a just society. Mm. Turned out it wasn't completely just, you know. Yeah, um, uh, let them eat cake and also well, that's the falling pr- heads. Oh, that was Yeah, that, that, that's prior to it. But, the, but then, um, the, I mean, we're a little bit off topic here, but the French Revolution was a bourgeois revolution. It was for... The people who owned and could could you know use their property, um, it was not a revolution that was to the benefit of all human beings, even though they had you know these universal ideas. And as Mary Wollstonecraft pointed out in her vindication of the rights of women, it was all it was it was also not particularly good for women either. You know? uh, so there. So their some, first iteration was definitely a proponent or a, a test case for Rousseau. Yeah, I, I suppose you could say so. They they thought they were getting out of the Rousseauian dile- or pr- predicament, and and they didn't actually do so. But I mean, and, and and this is a good place I think to bring in something that we were going to talk about a little bit later. Another theorist, um, Charles Mills, 
who uh, has talked about the racial contract that, and it doesn't just apply to the United States. You can find similar things, uh, you know, done in different ways, say in Brazil or in in uh, France or in other places. But what he points out about America is that we, we've been very attracted to this notion of social, notion of social contract, right? Mm-hmm. But our social contract from the very beginning was not a, it was not a full social contract. Instead, there was a, he thinks, a deeper racial contract that was more fundamental to Western society as we started, you know, you know, evaluating people in terms of things that had not been markers beforehand that were meaningful in terms of race. And the race in, in this racial contract that, again, nobody got together and said, let's sign this and, you know, work this out. It just kind of happened this way. It determined who would count as a person. So some people were were counting fully as people. Others were only partially people. Some were not considered to be people at all, just animals, you know, machinery to be used. Um, it could determine, you know, in which circumstances a person would be considered to be a person. And unfortunately, well, I mean, it, no matter how it happens to people, this is, this is going to be bad. But it happened along racial lines. So as these notions of races became more and more um, developed, um, it fell here in the United States on on everybody who wasn't considered white. And, you know, this this racial contract, you could think of it as sort of a social contract to include some people and exclude others. And Mills really wants to stress that although there have been a lot of deliberate decisions by people you know, exhibiting racial prejudice or, you know, even engaging in terrorism, let's say through lynchings and things like that. Um, It works even if people stop being overtly racist because of systematized racism. Uh, And this is a controversial topic. I'll say it's a controversial topic in the sense that some people think that there isn't systemic racism, that there aren't worse outcomes in terms of health or education or uh, all sorts of other measures for, say, African-Americans here, think about Milwaukee, as there are for for the white population in general. Um, It's controversial not because it's inherently controversial, but it's controversial because some people just don't want to see that it it is the case. And so the, the... what ends up happening with social contract theory is that it ends up hiding the true reality of things, which Mills talks about as being a political reality, but we could talk about it also being social and economic in terms of health. You know, like when I have students who um, come to my classes and then, you know, will we'll at some point or another outside of class say, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not feeling all that comfortable. Um, and I said, well, why? And, and, and it has to do with, with uh, some of the stuff that's being discussed in class and who's getting to talk and who's not getting to talk. And I try to make my classes as inclusive as possible. Um, that's, that's part of what Mills is talking about. And that might be seen as kind of trivial, you know, compared to policing, but, but it, it all, you know, figures in in one way or another. And I think it, it, it all kind of matters. So, when so you know to go back to where we started with uh, Kimberly Jones talking about the social contract being broken, maybe the social contract has been broken for a very very long time, mm-hmm. you know, since the inception of our country basically. In that, yeah, in, and, the and in different sense, 
and in different ways. Sometimes it intensifies. You know, bringing up the uh, um, the uh, the riots and the destruction of um, Black Wall Street. That would be one particular time where it was like shoved in people's faces. This contract is not your contract. You know, mm-hmm. and and we'll use we'll use terror and violence to to um, make sure that that's you know understood. And there's there's a difference also here between you know the the laws and the books and the the enforcement mm. of those laws and how that social contract or that you know I guess this racial contract yeah. um, is is applied or not applied based on who has the power and who can enforce those rules. But you know, going back to like trying to finish up the some of the main ideas in the social contract is like why do we need governments and what are the power splits between the individuals and governments and so like Hobbes we have here this idea that we're giving up our natural rights in exchange for protection um to save us from this uh what's called the uh state of nature you know Locke is doing some of the same things but also for adding predictability but we have the the right to change our government if it's no longer to our suiting anymore. Whereas Hobbes is like, no, you got yeah, it. You're stuck you know, with it. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. It, it's better than the state of nature. Anything is better than the state of nature. You can yeah, have I mean, a, a despot. If we want to think about like policing, let, I mean, let's pause on that for just a second and think about it like Hobbes versus Locke, right? Do we have to have the police departments that we have? Do we have to have the officers that we have? Are we just sort of stuck with them? Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a Hobbesian point of view. Uh, you need them because otherwise everything's going to break down. Whereas Locke would say, um, you know, you you can not just get rid of the bad apples, but also get rid of the apples that are halfway spoiled, and maybe start changing the barrels so that you know the bad apples actually fall out. And um, if if an entire barrel is contaminated, get rid of it, and hire some new ones. You know. So like, um, what is it? Within this last decade, uh, they found that the police force in Puerto Rico, like the entire police of Puerto Rico were uh, corrupt to the bone and they got rid of everyone Wow! Uh, and, and started from the ground up or another example. Of this is uh, Camden, New Jersey. Oh, um, right, they also right. had a, a thing. And so they, they uh, broke the contract with everyone in the police department and they had everyone reapply. And so basically that allowed them to start from the beginning and hopefully it had some good first principles in order to actually result in a, a better interaction with this police. But then there's also the, the whole movement of just like abolish the police. And so like we've loaded up so much onto the police that might be much more suited to someone without a gun that uh, maybe we don't need as many police in the first place. So that actually leads into something that I wanted to talk about. Maybe that can be understood as part of like reworking the social contract. Right. Um, Because the question is, okay, so if we have a lot of people who rightly think that the social contract has been broken for them and remains broken, what are all alternatives? We can say, well, it's too bad that you feel that way, but uh, we're going to keep on going on. And then that's kind of a, a, a stupid way to proceed, I think, because then obviously things are not going to get any better. And it's it's unjust as well. It, it's inhumane right. to do that. So if we want to have a new social contract, what does the social contract look like? I, I, I think that reforming uh, police uh, departments would be part of that. But also, like you're saying, taking defunding them partially taking some of those those monies and and putting them into other things i was astonished to find out that 41 percent of milwaukee's budget goes to the police force that is a lot 
Yeah, more than Minneapolis, people, you know? Oh, and considering uh, how much people, like, despise their property taxes here. Yeah, and, and so how much is going towards education? How much is going towards healthcare? How much is going towards the library? You know, it's, 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 it's less. And so, I mean, I'm not saying that we need to, like, you know, do more for the library necessarily. I think our libraries are doing pretty good. But Milwaukee Public Schools could definitely use some of that money. You public know? health. Uh, yeah. Wow. And, 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 so, the, and the public health could go towards, um, you know, social workers and people um, coming in to help us deal with addiction in different ways and mental illness in different ways. It doesn't require such a massive policing presence. And a lot of times the policing is detrimental to the individuals. It's not actually benefiting them. Um, and so, like, we're, we're coming to this point where, like, you know, what happens when we have this breakdown of our social contract? And right now we're, we're living that experience. And so you, you get people that, you know, either um, start to, you know, voice their concerns, you know, uh, start to protest. It starts small and then it gets larger. And then, you know, at, if you're not going to actually... Uh, deal with the protesters and saying that there is something significantly wrong, then yeah, riots are going to break out because people no longer have any buy into the system. This is kind of the whole idea with, you know, um, MLK and Malcolm X. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, the Black Power Movement, yeah. Yeah, and so either you have a group that still wants to be part of the American society, or one that says, ah, we could take it or leave it. We don't care anymore. And if, you know, Violence is a uh, acceptable way to go about that. You know, that's a really good point. And I think part of what's been going on for a long time and, and, and being articulated in many different ways is this idea that American society, if there's going to be buy into it from those who've been marginalized, oppressed, you know, in some cases terrorized, American society has to be different than what it's been in the past. So it, it, it's not like saying, well, you fit yourself into this category here that, that we've got. No, the category has to widen and change and become um, more inclusive. And, and if you want to take a different example, you go to the American Revolution and, you know, there were there were protests and then there were, you know, take the um, the Boston Tea Party, you know, you're getting some destructive things. And then the final step is <laughs> overthrow of government. If the government yeah. doesn't respond to the, you know, the will of the people here, then there's going to be another step and there, you know, dissolve those political unions. Yeah, the Boston Tea Party is an interesting one because I've seen that used as a counterpoint, and I think rightly so, to people who are like, all this property damage and, you know, defacing things, oh, it's so, it's so terrible. And you're like, I guess you don't like the uh, revolutionaries then, you know, because mm-hmm. um, they thought that, like, uh, throwing all this stuff overboard was, was A-OK um, in, in those situations. Mm-hmm. So, so how do we reconstitute the social contract what can we do? I mean, what, what provides us with a good model for what a, a, a better social contract would look like? I think uh, at least one would be to bring in John Rawls. He's uh, a rather contemporary uh, philosopher who talks about, uh, specifically in this regard, the idea of a the veil of ignorance in creating... So you... I'll step back a moment. He, he has a, a 
process by which he thinks that people should uh, create a society in which they um, create it and they will not know which position and that they will be taking within that society once they join it. And so basically they'll they'll be born into the society and they can either be born into the very top of the society or they could be born at the very bottom of the society or any place in between. And this is the idea of this veil of ignorance that you don't know your position going into it. And yeah. he feels that I guess that is one process by which we can you know think about this in kind of the abstract. Yeah, and and the idea is that you wouldn't know like whether you you would have any sort of handicaps or or where your desires would lie or what talents you would have or lacks of talents or any of those sorts of things. Now the question is, well, how would you set up society? And Rawls thinks, well, if you're a rational person, you would definitely not pick a society in which the poor are like screwed all sorts of different ways, because you might be one of them. You know, it would not be rational to do that. And I, I you know, I think this is pretty good. And I, I use this with my students quite a bit, and have them sort of like, you know, reconstruct what what um, a decent society would look like. Rawls thinks that if we do this, we're going to come up with two basic rules and i think these are pretty good i don't know that i buy his argument entirely but one of them is that we would have um e you know equality of opportunity you know equality of access to all the basic goods and so it doesn't mean that everybody has to have exactly the same thing but you can't like restrict people from from enjoying them so for example um uh racial profiling and in, in policing would be ruled out you know, because mm -hmm. it's it's restricting people from, say, public spaces or or um, justice from, in the, the abstract. Exactly. And then the other thing that he says is that you can have differences, but the differences like a doctor can be paid more, but it's got to work out positively for the most vulnerable, for the person who's worst off. And, and we don't do that in our society. We, we, too often we're like, well, it works out great for the doctor and it works out great for like, you know, the people who can afford him. But, you know, these people over here are too bad for them. And that's leaving them out of the social contract. And this I think, is the idea of uh, a maxi-min or a maximum minimum. So what, there, yeah. any amount and, of inequality must also raise the floor by which the lowest in society exactly. enjoy the benefits of that society. And it also expresses another principle that Rawls doesn't talk about, but so many traditions have, which is solidarity with those who are vulnerable, you know, um, not making things harder for them. And, and this is, I think, where some of the legitimacy of the protests that are happening goes on. What we're seeing by people who were not, um, you know, previously committing themselves to saying Black Lives Matter is a recognition that for too long, um, they haven't, and that that has to change, and that a social contract that we would have that's going to take us further and not just you know lead to interminable con conflict is going to have to include that. So we would like to end our shows with uh, the idea of a practice, and so for this week we've got a practice. Yeah, yeah. Making your own social contract. So maybe you want to try to use this Rawlsian idea of you know a war would make that a better you know, society for yourself. Try to think about what is a, um, sit and think if you were able to start from a blank slate. What is the society that you would like? Would everyone else like it? Could you make a contract that everyone could agree to? 
That's that's a great thought exercise. That's also something you could do with other people too. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned that we do this in the classroom when I'm teaching John Rawls, but there's nothing that would prevent people from like sitting down and saying, hey, let's, uh, you know, we're not going to like do Plato's Republic Utopian Society. We're actually going to like pretend that we don't have any idea what we're going to be like. Let's enter into the veil of ignorance and then think about what would be fair. And we could actually do this. You could start out by saying, let's do this for Milwaukee. Let's do this for what, um, you know, our, our public schools would look like, where our hospitals and clinics would go. Um, where we would put more police presence, where we would have less of it. You know, I, I, I think this would be a great exercise for people to do. You had another thing right. in mind, though, as well. Oh, yeah. So, you know, Thomas Jefferson, you know, uh, one of the founding parents of this country, uh, has this idea that, you know, the Constitution should be rewritten every 19 years. And this, you know, should we be held fast to laws and ideas that were in vogue um, and thought through 250 years ago? Are these uh, laws, uh, these ideas evergreen? Or are there significant uh, ways that we would differ from those people back then? And, you know, he thought that, like, that that probably wouldn't hold. And so he thought that these basic norms of our society should be uh have to be re-agreed upon you know, this is kind of removing that idea of the social contract from uh something that you're just given to something that you're actively a participant in that's actually a great insight that uh, you know when we look at um the social contract as something that's oh it's just inherent and we got to stick with it we 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 don't see that we have agency and that because of we have agency, we also have responsibility to try to make it a more equitable and inclusive contract. So now, why every 19 years? I don't know that the answer to that. Do you? No, I don't. It seems kind of arbitrary. But... <laughs> Maybe that was I... part of the idea. You know, make it arbitrary. Yeah, and and so. I another resource to maybe look at this is there's a uh, social psychologist by the name of Nicholas Christakis who's uh, wrote a book called uh, Blueprint and it, it's all about his research with looking at all sorts of different um, societies uh, especially lots of plant societies kibbutzes and communes as well as every single time a ship has crashed in an island and the societies that they've set up in those oh. and he's created a thing called the social suite in which he says are the basic things that all societies must have in them in order to uh, have a, a functioning and continuing organization so we'll we'll put a link to that you want to uh, lead us out on some final thought then yeah so um, from President John F. Kennedy, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable.